Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Jeff Dyer and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. A devastating missile and drone attack on Saudi oil installations last week highlighted the vulnerability of global oil supplies to the threat of regional unrest. The attack was claimed by Houthi rebels fighting Saudi-backed forces in neighbouring Yemen. But Saudi and US officials were quick to point the finger of blame at Iran. Here with me to discuss the repercussions of the attack is our Middle East editor Andrew England and Anjali Raval, our senior energy correspondent. We just heard a Houthi military spokesman claiming responsibility for the attacks and promising further attacks if the Saudis continue what they say is its aggression and blockade against Houthi rebel forces in Yemen. But Andrew, in spite of the Houthi claims, no one seemed to believe that they could have carried out these attacks without the help of Iran. Iran has denied any involvement in the attacks. So what evidence do we actually have that they were behind this attack? Well, let's start off with the Houthis. The Houthis have been fighting the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen for four years. And they have previously fired drones and missiles into Saudi Arabia, particularly in the south. They've hit airports. They claim to have hit a pipeline and two oil pumping stations in June. So they do fire missiles across the border. This attack, though, is right up in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. That's where the main oil assets of the kingdom are, hundreds of miles away from the border. So immediately there are questions about would the Houthis from Yemen all the way down below the southern border of Saudi Arabia have the capability to do this attack. And it seemed to be a very sophisticated, coordinated attack. Initially, the US said it couldn't have come from Yemen. And then US officials started briefing off the record that they thought it originated from Iran. As you say, Iran denies that. The Saudis then came out and they did a big presentation showing what they claim was evidence of seven missile attacks on the Kuras oil field and 18 drones attacking the Abcake oil facility, the world's biggest oil processing facility. Now, they didn't have evidence other than, say, the weaponry was of Iranian origin and that their satellite imagery and the information they had showed it had been fired from the north. So the Saudis still say they're working out the exact launch point, but they've made it clear they don't believe it's the Houthis, they don't believe it came from Yemen. It's Iranian weaponry and it came from the north. Now, of course, the other reason the Saudis would believe it is Iran is Saudi Arabia is one of the US's closest allies, a longtime rival of Iran. And Riyadh has been very supportive of President Donald Trump's maximum pressure strategy against Iran. Andrew, this attack came when there did seem to be some momentum behind diplomacy. There was even talk of maybe a meeting between Donald Trump and Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, and they're both in New York this week for the United Nations General Assembly. Is that all now over? Is the idea of a new diplomatic push, is that now dead? I think you could look at it two ways. I mean, if we go back to there was a G7, a group of seven nations meeting in France last month, and that's when Trump suggested that he would be willing to meet President Rouhani. He previously said that he would have unconditional talks with Iran. And then Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, had talks with Macron. So there seemed to be some sort of momentum. And Macron, the French president, was talking about a $15 billion credit line to Iran to help ease the devastating impact of US sanctions on Iran's ability 
ability to export oil. So there was some sort of hope that maybe an uptick in European diplomacy led by Macron could lead to something happening at the UN General Assembly meeting. But from the Iranian position, nothing had changed. As far as we know, the Iranian position has always been clear that we will only talk to the US once the US removes US sanctions. So whilst there was optimism, it was no way guaranteed and it was very cautious optimism. Now, with this attack, the immediate reaction is, well, that's destroyed any hopes of diplomacy. But if we believe the US and Saudi claims that Iran was involved in this attack and the Europeans have now joined the US and blaming Iran, then we have to believe that Iran is doing this to increase the stakes, to show to its adversaries in the region, so Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the US, that there will be a cost to this maximum pressure strategy President Trump is imposing on Iran, and Iran will not be the only one to suffer. This attack in Saudi Arabia knocked out more than 5 million barrels of Saudi Arabia's oil production. So as the Saudis said, this was an attack not just on Saudi Arabia, but on the global energy industry. So clearly, this raised the stakes in terms of what the cost could be. It showed how vulnerable Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure was. Now, if you take it from there, then maybe, and this is a big maybe, maybe this will change the thinking and the various protagonists will think, hang on, this is getting out of hand. Do we now have to really have a bigger push to move forward diplomacy before things get to the point where you have a broader regional conflagration, which everybody says they don't want. So on the one hand, you assume that just the scale of the attack has put an end to any hopes of diplomacy and President Trump has imposed new sanctions on the central bank in Iran and talked about a response. We don't know what that response is yet. But on the other hand, you know, maybe this will make people think twice and think, OK, is this time to give Iran a way out? And the way out would be a diplomatic way out. But what about their US response? I mean, in the hours and the day after the attack, it seemed like some sort of military action by the US was imminent. Then mm. they seemed to back down, and now the US is sending some more troops to Saudi Arabia. So what do you think is going on? What do you think the US response will be? That is the multi-million dollar question. I mean, I think we have to remember that Donald Trump is a president who's made it clear that he doesn't support expensive, costly military interventions. He was critical of the US invasion of Iraq in 2003 in June after Iran shot down a unmanned American spy drone. He initially ordered a military response and then 10 minutes before that operation strikes were going to be launched against Iran, he called it off, citing the warning that you know, 150 Iranians might be killed in these attacks. So that showed, again, that whilst he has very strong rhetoric, that he's not inclined for military operations and risking dragging the US into a new war. Now, after the attack on the Saudi oil facilities, he said the US was locked and loaded. Mike Pompeo, his Secretary of State, described it as an act of war when he flew in to see Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah last week. But at the same time, I think we've seen that one, they've reimposed sanctions on the central bank or put sanctions on the central bank. And it's been a slightly calibrated response. And it's just really not clear what the next move will be. I think there is a sense that they don't want to rush anything. And this includes the Saudis. I think the Saudis themselves know that if there is a military strike against Iran, that could trigger yet more retaliatory action. And as that attack showed, their infrastructure is vulnerable. And it's not just oil facilities, it's crucial desalination plants, it's ports, it's airports, all these things. So do the Saudis, does the United Arab Emirates, which neighbours Iran, do they really want a conflict? We think not. We think they want to avoid it. And they want Iran to be under this pressure, but 
also given a way out. And that way out has to be a diplomatic way out. So will Trump offer that olive branch? So much rests with the US because the only way we can see the Iranians, who also say they don't want a war, coming to the table is if President Trump eases some of that pressure put on the republic through sanctions. Now, Angeli, it's been just over a week since the attack. What do we know about the full extent of the damage to the Saudi oil facilities and how long is it going to take to repair them? So in the days after the attack, there was a big press conference hosted by the energy minister, the CEO and chairman of Saudi Aramco were there. And that's when they disclosed that the attacks had knocked out 5.7 million barrels a day of Saudi crude oil production. So that's 5% of global supply that was taken off the market. Obviously, it's hugely significant. This is the world's biggest oil exporter. And in that same press conference and since executives have said that production will be back to this sort of pre-attack level by the end of September. So we'd assume around 9.8 million barrels a day. And they maintain that you can get back to the maximum production capacity. So this is like the maximum that Saudi Arabia might be willing to produce. That's well in excess of 11 million barrels a day. Now, this is what they say. In the market, there is still some scepticism given how severe the attacks were. I mean, what have we seen being attacked? We've seen processing trains. So this is where the crude comes into this facility, is treated and cleaned, essentially to make it viable for export. And it's separated into different grades. You also see separation tanks that were hit. These are these spheroid domes that separate gas from oil before it has to be processed further. You know, these are extremely specific surgical strikes on these domes. And there are other facilities too, storage tanks, drainage facilities, other things like that. But if you look at what's happening to oil prices, they escalated to nearly $72 a barrel right after the attacks, and they've gone back down to $64 a barrel. So in some ways, maybe the market does believe what the Saudis are saying, that they can get back up and running in a very short space of time, within weeks. But we're also hearing from a lot of experts in this field, people who understand the facilities too, that this is going to take months. And We may not see the full severity of these attacks for a while yet. You know, there's a huge amount of oil in storage. They've got about a month's worth of supplies in storage. They can cover the exports and they are diverting oil supplies from other facilities too in order to make sure that they are able to meet their exports and to get their production back. They can start up oil production at other facilities too. But they are so focused now on getting this production back. They have to get it back. They don't want other countries to take their market share. They want to maintain their credibility as the world's most reliable supplier. It's a reputation they've spent decades cultivating and making sure that they are still on track for that. And let's not forget, you know, the big elephant in the room, which is that they are trying to do an IPO of the world's most profitable company. So to take that point of the IPO, I mean, where does this leave the fate of Aramco, which the Saudi government is trying to sell a stake in? Privately, we're also hearing that if they can't get their production back, as they say, it does lay the timeline of this IPO in jeopardy. But the press conference last week really showed that the country is doubling down on this IPO. They need to have it. And it's a question of how they end up doing it. One question that's been raised is what's to stop this kind of attack happening again? The geopolitical risk factor around Saudi Aramco, I mean, it's huge. And it's just laid bare that the company, as much as 
it has been trying to show to the world that it's just like every other international oil major. They spent three years, you know, rewiring financials and operations and making sure it's fit for purpose for an international investor. Actually, it shows that it's got a target on its back like no other. It's an arm of the Saudi state. And so the question at the moment is, will the IPO be delayed? As of right now, there is no sense that it's going to be cancelled altogether or anything like that. But there is a question around timing. And if the company cannot get the valuation of $2 trillion, at least, that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, wants, what does that mean for the timing of the IPO? And how do they go about doing it? You know, we've reported in the last week or so the the kingdom is trying all sorts of ways to make sure they bolster that valuation, including pressuring wealthy Saudi families to sort of buy in to the IPO. That's one tactic. And these different tactics become more important when you've got something like these attacks having happened to the kingdom and to the company. They will do whatever it takes to try and secure this valuation. But there is this sense of how much are people actually willing to pay? Finally, where does this leave the oil market? I mean, if it does take months rather than weeks to repair these facilities? Given the significance of what's happened and how severe these attacks were, the market has obviously retreated a little bit and is a bit sanguine. I think everyone's just waiting and watching to see how much of a supply gap there is, if at all. There are signs that Saudi Arabia is trying to sell different types of crude grades than it was before. There are also reports that it's trying to secure barrels for future months from other producer countries and companies. And it's when we start to see more of that information coming out, you know, if we start to see Saudi Arabia drawing down its oil storage quicker than expected, let's say, all of these things will begin to build a picture of how severe the problem really is for the company. Or really, if they are able to meet these really very optimistic targets that they've set for themselves. Well, thank you to Anjali, thank you to Andrew, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you missed our episodes on China's efforts to curb its emissions, Edward Snowden's memoirs, or the breakdown of talks between the US and the Afghan Taliban, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.